Well, I think what's most important about the Inflation Reduction Act is that it covers a lot of different bases. So yes, it has the investments in solar energy and wind energy and renewable energy technology that you would expect, but it also has a huge investment in natural climate solutions. Natural climate solutions are ways to work with nature to help nature make us more resilient to climate impacts and to take carbon out of the atmosphere where we have too much and put it back in the ecosystems and the soil and the wetlands where we want it. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. Catherine Hayhoe is a climate scientist, an evangelical Christian, and a Texan. Those three parts of her identity do not always play well together. That helps explain why she is determined to find effective ways to communicate with people who do not agree with her. Hayhoe is an atmospheric scientist who studies climate change. She is a distinguished professor at Texas Tech University and chief scientist at the Nature Conservancy. Her latest book is Saving Us, a climate scientist's case for hope and healing in a divided world. She writes regularly for the Washington Post and numerous other publications. Her TED Talk, The Most Important Thing You Can Do About Climate Change, Talk About It, has received over 4 million views. Originally from Canada, Catherine Hayhoe came to Vermont to deliver the keynote address for the 50th anniversary of VPIRG. Professor Catherine Hayhoe, welcome to the Vermont Conversation. Thank you for having me. You're a climate scientist and you live in Texas. This sounds like the beginning of a bad joke, but um, uh, this is your reality. And I wonder what you can share about how do you talk about climate change to your skeptical or denialist fellow Texans? Well, for many reasons, Texas really is the perfect place to be a climate scientist. Uh, for good reasons, in that Texas has more wind energy than any other state, and it's moving quickly up the ladder on solar as well, but also for difficult reasons. The fact that it's arguably the most vulnerable state in the country to climate impacts, even though today every state is being impacted in ways we can see, and also because there's so many people here who truly, uh, for political and ideological reasons, question whether climate action is necessary, and often use sciencey sounding excuses to say that's why we don't need to act. So I've had a lot of experience in your question, thousands and thousands of conversations. And I have to say that it's really important to realize that people aren't just sort of yes or no on this issue. We aren't just believers or deniers. We fall into what the Yale Program on Climate Communication calls the six Americas of global warming. And it starts at one end with people who are alarmed and concerned. And today, the majority of people in the US are already alarmed or concerned. And to know why, all you have to do is open the headlines, the floods, the wildfires, the heat waves, the droughts. So well over half of us are already alarmed and concerned. Then there's people in the middle who are cautious. They're conscious something is wrong, but don't know quite what to do about it. Small number of people are disengaged. They've been living under a rock the last 10 years, and that number is getting smaller and smaller every year. And then you have people who are seriously doubtful, and then you have about seven or 8% who are dismissive. And dismissive people, I think that's a really good label because it's very descriptive of who they are. Dismissives will dismiss 200 years of science, 2000 climate scientists, 2 million scientific studies, 
In fact, my personal definition of a dismissive is someone who, if an angel from God with brand new tablets of stone that said global warming is real and foot high letters of flame appeared before them, they would dismiss that. So with dismissives, the only secret to having a positive conversation with the dismissive is to say, you're wrong, or if they're a, a relative, which many times they are, I love you, but you're wrong. Now let's talk about something else. But here's the thing, only 7% of people really are dismissive. And so that means with everybody else, there is a secret to a positive conversation. And that secret is to begin with something you agree on rather than something you disagree on. So I just want to clarify, with dismissives, you've abandoned hope. It's not possible, barring a miracle, and you know, I personally don't feel like I'm in the miracle business. Um, I don't think it's possible, barring a miracle, to have a positive, constructive conversation with somebody who won't listen. A conversation requires two people. And a key hallmark of someone who's dismissive is they literally will not and cannot listen because they see what you're saying as posing such a threat to who they are that they literally can't listen. I've even had conversations where someone said, well, why didn't you talk about X? And I said, well, that's actually exactly what I said. I said X and they couldn't hear me say it because they have such a defensive filter over their ears. On any topic, we just can't talk to somebody if they can't listen. So in the current moment, there is, I hesitate to call it a new phenomenon, but let's just say a, a more common phenomenon of disinformation, misinformation, and people firmly believing something they saw or read or watched on the internet or somewhere else um, where they are simply misinformed. So for you to speak, to tell them otherwise, is to kind of shatter this carefully crafted worldview that they've constructed based on the silos of information where they are living. You are absolutely right. And that has been around as long as there's been humans probably or human society, but the internet has magnified that substantially where you can find, you know, YouTube videos or blog posts claiming anything you want about how the world is flat or how about something was fake. So here's the thing though, if we back up a step and we think, why do they want to believe that? What is underneath that, that they're worried about? Because often our acceptance of misinformation is a defense mechanism. And that's why with climate change, as well as with other issues like vaccines or politics, we're often tempted to just go head to head immediately. That's wrong and I can explain to you exactly why it's wrong. Well, I'm a scientist and I can certainly explain why all the misinformation about climate change is wrong. But in my experience, that often just leads to more defensive and combative conversations that typically don't change somebody's mind because you've turned it into a, if I win, you lose situation. But if we can dig below and so say, you know, let's put that on hold. I know you think it's a natural cycle, but let's put that on hold. Let's go beneath that. Let's talk about, you know, what things are you worried about? What things have you noticed? If, you know, if, if you know, it isn't a natural cycle, what would that mean that you're worried about? And if we can go a level deeper, that's often where we can find sometimes surprising amounts of agreement or at least empathy for, for why they think that. And then acknowledging the true fear, then start to talk about, well, what could we, you know, what would a solution look like that would actually address that without requiring the misinformation or the denial? So you have very personal experience of this in that, as I understand it, your husband was a 
climate skeptic when you met? I don't know if this maybe I should let you characterize his position, but you changed his thinking. So tell me what it took. What worked? Well, today in the United States, the number one predictor of whether people agree with literally 200 year old science, that's how old the science is, telling us that when we dig up and burn coal and gas and oil, it produces heat trapping gases that are building up in the atmosphere, wrapping an extra blanket around the planet. That is literally how basic the explanation is of what's happening. The number one reason why people decide to agree or disagree with that science is not how smart they are. It's not how educated they are. It's not how much science they know. It is simply where they fall on the political spectrum. And for the last you know, 15 years or so, climate change has been at the top of the list of the most politically polarized issues in the country. So most of us, we don't have time to dig into the nuances of immigration policy or GMOs or climate change. You know, we just accept what people we trust say. So with so many of our family members, including my own, as you referred to, we just sort of say, oh, well, you know, I'm this type of person. So, you know, the people who I agree with about other topics, they say it isn't real. That's where this comes from. And so what I, the biggest thing I learned, I feel like I learned more than he did, was we have to start by respecting each other, by not assuming, oh, well, if you don't agree with me, you're an idiot, <laughs> because that, that never really leads to a productive conversation. And if we're thinking that about someone, that usually means we're not the right person to have that conversation, because even if you don't voice that, it will still come through, right? I'm sure you've had experiences where you felt like the other person was thinking that, right? Yes. <laughs> I have had too, yes. So, so realizing, you know what, this person is, you know, they, their heart's in the right place, they wanna do the right thing, they're a smart person, but they've just been listening to people who might be right on other things, but on this, they just aren't. And so really digging in and saying, well, you know, so, so what have you seen happening? Or, and today everybody's seen something happening. Something's getting weirder wherever we live. Or what are you concerned about in terms of, you know, what does a, a better future look like for you? Or what do you care the most about? And often people might care about, you know, gardening, or they might care about winter sports, or they might care about their kids. And starting that conversation, figuring out what you have in common. And for me, a big thing that I have in common with my husband and with many other people I talk to is our faith as a Christian. Uh, we believe that we are to love and care for those who are less fortunate than us. And so starting conversations somewhere where we agree and then connecting the dots to how climate change is affecting what we both care about, whether it's the place where we live, the things we love doing, the people we love. And then this is really important. Don't stop there. We need to bring in a positive, constructive solution to talk about something that we can do either personally or we could do through the place where we work or the place we study or the place where we live or something that we can engage in with our family. What could we do that actually makes a difference? Because if there's nothing we can do about it, why talk about a problem? How long did it take you to bring your husband around to somewhere closer to your view, if not complete agreement? It's not an overnight process. Um, I've had some conversations, I think, where people did sort of flip pretty quickly, but most of the time it's about allowing people the space to think about it, to consider, to ask the questions, to say, that's a great question, you know, let's find the answer to that together. And to slowly over time sort of shift our thinking on things. And so for us, I think it was probably a few years. 
um, for people, other people I've had in my life, you know, it might have happened a little quicker or it might have taken a lot longer. I teach classes at Texas Tech University where often students take the class and they, they're really up front at the beginning. They're like, I'm taking this class because I don't agree with any of this stuff, but I just feel like it's important to know it. So I'm taking the class and I, and I respect them enormously for doing that because that's a pretty challenging thing, right? To take a class where you don't think you agree with it. But over the course of the class, I don't think I've had a single student who didn't shift their thinking just due to all the information they were exposed to, not only about the science though, about what was happening in Texas, about how it affected people's lives, about what real solutions look like and all of the benefits today, as well as the benefits tomorrow from the solutions. I have never failed to see those minds shift, not in a dismissive person, not in that 7%, but in the rest of us, if we approach that conversation with respect, with, um, really looking for mutual engagement and mutual points of interest and, and commonalities and values and concerns that we share, and then bringing in those positive constructive solutions, that's truly where we can see that change. And so you might say, well, you know, this, this sounds fun when we're talking about, but how do I do it in real life? Well, that's why I wrote a book last year, and I'm gonna be talking about that when I come to Vermont, about how to have those conversations. You know, how do you start? Where do you connect the dots? What type of information do I bring up? And does this really matter? It turns out there's scientific research that shows that it does matter a lot. And this is my favorite part. Scientists are pretty trusted messengers. You know, broadcast meteorologists are pretty trusted. Healthcare professionals are pretty trusted. Uh, religious leaders are pretty trusted. And scientists are the number two most trusted messengers but there's one group of people that are even more trusted than scientists. And that group is you, people we know. People we know are more trusted than anybody else to have these conversations. And so that's why when they asked me to do a TED talk, I said, I wanna do a TED talk on the most important thing anybody can do to help fight climate change. And they're like, well, we already have TED talks on light bulbs and plant-based diets and electric cars. And I'm like, no, the single most important thing that everybody can do, we could be eight years old, we could be 88 years old, doesn't matter where we are, where we live, who we are, each of us has a voice that we can use to have conversations about why this matters and what we can do to fix it with the people we know. So let me shift to your work as a climate scientist. The headlines, I think many people are just kind of overwhelmed when it comes to issues of the climate. Um, you know, this week it's about the Arctic melting at four times the speed that scientists thought they were melting at. Um, what of the things you are seeing rise to the top for you as things that really concern you, that really are indicators of problems that you might not have thought were as big as they were even a year ago? I can tell you exactly what that is because it's at the top of our headlines all summer. It's the way that climate change is loading the weather dice against us. We've always known going back decades that even that the average is changing, our average temperature, our average rainfall, our average sea level is changing. But we've known that what's happening at what scientists call the tails of the distribution, the extremes, is even more concerning. We've known that for a long time. But what we're seeing is that as the world gets warmer, it's like wherever we live, we have a pair of dice and we always have a chance of naturally rolling a double six, a heat wave, a storm, a flood, a drought, a wildfire, an extreme event. 
But as the world gets warmer, it's like climate change is sneaking in and taking one of those numbers from our dice and turning it into another six. And then taking another number and turning it into a seven. And all of a sudden we're rolling double sixes and double sevens and even a couple of eights. And we're like, what is going on? I have to say the speed at which that is happening is very alarming to us scientists. Why? Because these extremes, and we've seen, I mean, the headlines around the world this summer have just been off the charts. You talk about the record-breaking heat waves and droughts in Europe and the UK, followed by record-breaking heavy rainfall and flood, record-breaking drought in China, record-breaking floods in Pakistan with over 30 million people affected, um, the wildfires and the record-breaking heat waves that we're seeing all across the Western United States. The, there's been five, uh, thousand year flood events in the US in five weeks, and we're still getting more of them. I mean, if you just look at all of these extreme events, why do they matter? They affect us. They affect our homes, our infrastructure, our transportation, our crops, our water supply, the city of Jackson, not having you know, water to, to support its population. Things that we took for granted that you turn on the tap and water would come out. You can't take those things for granted anymore. And the cost in terms of human suffering, the cost in terms of the economic impacts, the long-term cost in terms of the supply chain disruptions and the need to rebuild all of our infrastructure and the, the burden on our insurance and just the personal burden of having to people having to rebuild their homes that they've lost to wildfire or flood or you know, even sell their, their land that they've, you know, because of drought, they can't grow their crops anymore. That is very concerning because it is leading to suffering today. And we know that if we don't tackle this problem at scale, it is only getting worse. So you're describing really all of the climate effects when you speak of loading the, uh, the dice. Is there one in particular? Uh, I don't know if it's wildfires, floods, the melting to Arctic, um, that kind of gets your attention as a scientist that says, this is the thing we should really pay attention to here because it's telling mm -hmm. us something uh, that perhaps we didn't know or didn't appreciate was as serious as it was? Mm. That's a great question. So as a human, I would say that the most important thing is what you're already vulnerable to in the places where you live. So, you know, if you live in a place that really has never had wildfire before, then wildfire is not what you have to worry about. But if you live out west, it is. If you live somewhere like, you know, Kansas, hurricanes are not something you have to worry about. But if you live in Miami or Houston, oh my goodness, yes. Um, in Vermont, we're worried about things like the snow is changing, the impact on the wildlife and plants and animals and insects that we see, and the timing of the seasons is changing. The maple syrup season is changing. The, you know, when the leaves turn are, is, being, is being affected and all of the tourism that that brings. I did an analysis a number of years ago that even showed how the snowmobiling industry is being affected by the fact that our snowpack is becoming more inconsistent and the season is shrinking. So what matters to us as humans is what's happening where we live. But as a scientist, what I'm very concerned about is the science that people are doing studying what we call paleoclimate. So in the past, we know the earth has been warmer and cooler for natural reasons. And we also know today that we're putting 10 times more heat trapping gases into the atmosphere on an annual basis than any time as far back as we've seen for millions of years. So this is completely unprecedented what we're doing. 
And the more we learn about past changes in climate, the more sensitive we realize the earth is to much smaller changes than what we humans are doing today. And so that's what makes me worried is when we look at what's happened in the distant past, we realize things could get a lot worse, a lot quicker than we imagine. And there were not 8 billion people around back then, <laughs> but today there are. And that's why when I wrote my book, I didn't call it saving the planet. The planet's gonna be around long after we're gone. I called it saving us because that's what it's about. It's about saving us humans and many of the other living species that share this planet with us. We are the ones at risk. Give us an example of what you're learning when you look at the distant past. Um, give us one example of what you see there. One of the examples that really comes to mind is the speed at which the giant ice sheets that anchor our poles in Greenland and Antarctica can destabilize and melt. For a long time, the projections of sea level rise that scientists were working with were linear over time. But what we're seeing, looking again to the distant past, is that there's the potential for nonlinear changes, exponential changes. And that means that from year to year, sea level rise would be accelerating, happening faster and faster and faster. And NASA satellites have showed us that, in fact, that's happening over the last 25 years. The rate of sea level rise has doubled. So it's rising, but it's rising faster and faster and faster every year, which means, you know, the last 10 years it rose this much, but the next 10 years it's rising much more than that. And the next 10 years after that, even faster. And what that means is we have less and less time to prepare and adapt. And we have 700 million people who live in the low elevation coastal zone around the world, including two thirds of the world's largest cities and many, many, many people who live below the poverty line who have no resources and no way to escape. It's not about our luxury coastal homes as much as it is about people who literally have nowhere else to live and nowhere else to grow their food. So sea level rise, um, getting back to the thing that really grabs your attention, okay. you kind of anticipate that may be something that, uh, well, to use a phrase, rises up on us faster than we're expecting and has immediate catastrophic results. I mean, I think about, you know, I've been in Miami and I've heard about and read about the things that they're doing to armor themselves, you know, and the enormous cost. Um, and of course, you, you look at a place like Miami, and I'm sure on the coast of Texas, where you are, um, you know, these buildings are built right on the sand, right up to the water's edge. What is going to happen to those places? Well, in some places like Miami Beach, they are already raising the level of the roads by two feet. Imagine how much that costs. They're installing pumps. They're considering, you know, the bottom level of the building, like the parking garage is already flooded during sunny day flooding events, not storms, but just high tide plus sea level rise plus the king tide that happens occasionally. So they're looking at, you know, maybe we can't use that anymore. But the challenge with places like Miami is you can't just build like a dike like they have in the Netherlands because it's limestone porous rock. And so the water just goes right underneath and up the other side. So we have to be figuring out where can we adapt? Where can we live with the water? And where can we not adapt and not live with the water? We can't be pouring more money into those places because we need to be preparing for where we actually can be living in the future. So, but again, in Vermont, people might be saying, okay, well, that's their problem over there. <laughs> that's not our problem here. But what we have to worry about is we have to worry about what's happening where we live. 
And what's happening is we see invasive species moving in. We see, um, again, the seasons are shifting, affecting key aspects of the economy and tourism. We see that um, extreme heat is increasing. And I grew up not too far from Vermont. I'm from Toronto, so you know, just over the border. Spent my share of, of, of you know, spring break skiing in Vermont <laughs> and Jay Peak and other places like that. And I know that our houses are not prepared for the changes that are coming. The home I grew up in didn't have air conditioning. When it got hot for one week in the summer, we just sleep in the basement that week. Well, nowadays we have crazy summer heat waves. We have massive torrential downpours. Even across the Northeast right now, we're seeing drought conditions, which is you know pretty unusual for that part of the world. And again, we've seen storms, heat, drought, flood before, but climate change is making them worse, exacerbating them, making them more intense, more damaging, more dangerous. And that affects us where we live. And that's why this matters so much to all of us. Professor Hayhoe, um, you are an evangelical Christian, the daughter of missionaries. And you've said that acknowledging that you are a Christian and a scientist is like coming out of the closet. Explain what you mean. Well, today, unfortunately, in the United States, like I said, climate change is right at the top of the most politically polarized issues in the country. And when you break down the demographics, many people who call themselves evangelical Christians here in the U.S. would say, oh, it isn't real. In fact, about two thirds of people would say it isn't real. And so for that reason, when people realize I'm a Christian as well as a climate scientist, they often think, how could that be? But for me, I actually am a climate scientist because I'm a Christian. Because I truly believe, if you take the Bible seriously, that from the beginning in Genesis to the end in Revelation, it talks about how we humans, all of us have responsibility over every living thing on this planet, which includes our sisters and our brothers, as well as plants and animals and every other living thing that there is. I believe that we are to care for each other and at the very end of the Bible, it actually says God will destroy those who destroy the earth. <laughs> so it's very clear that there is a faith-based mandate for caring, not just for every living thing on this planet, but for, again, those who are most impacted by our actions. And when you look at every other major religious tradition around the world, they have the same themes of being good stewards or caring for nature or creation, as well as caring for people who are less fortunate than ourselves. So I see it as being entirely consistent, but unfortunately in the US, we've gotten to the point now where for many people, their statement of faith is written first by their politics and only a very distant second by their theology. And if the two come into conflict, they'll go with ideology over theology any day. In fact, one study last year showed that 40% of people who call themselves evangelicals in the US don't even go to church. So if they don't go to church, where are they getting their belief system from? From the church of Facebook or Fox News or whoever it is they depend on for their ideology. So again, beginning our conversations with something we have in common, which it could be faith or it could be something else. That's a great place to bring people back to what they really believe and what really matters to them. So that, that's why, so for me, you know, I often encourage people to do an inventory. And in my book, Saving Us, I actually, you know, take people through doing an inventory. So um, who are you and what do you care about? And that's places where you can begin conversations. So for me, my faith is one place, but I'm also a mother. So I can begin conversations with other pe people who are moms or parents. And I help to co-found an organization called Science Moms. That's all about engaging mothers to use their voice to advocate for their kids' future, which means we got to fix climate change. 
I, I do love to ski, like I mentioned. Um, growing up in Canada, of course, I'm also a big fan of maple syrup, so we can definitely have conversations about that. And, and hockey, um, I assume. And hockey too, yes, for sure. Um, I've even had conversations over the fact that I love beach vacations, or I knit, um, or I like to cook. So really figuring out who we are and what we care about, we can connect the dots between almost anything any place, anywhere, anything, anyone that we love, how climate change is affecting it and how there's solutions that benefit us all. You wrote recently in the Houston Chronicle uh, that caring about climate change isn't just Christian, it's pro-life. Um, I uh, admire your courage in kicking not just one, but two hornet's nests uh, at <laughs> yes. once. So uh, say a little bit about what you mean by that. Well, first of all, for me, I would define pro-life as, as not from conception to birth, as so many people do, but really the whole spectrum of human life until our death. And when we look at how pollution from fossil fuels and how climate change affects the unborn, it affects maternal health, it affects infants, it affects children, it affects people throughout their whole lifespan, and it affects people who are senior citizens, as we go through that whole spectrum, it is crystal clear that if we actually cared for people's health, then we would be up in arms against air pollution, which air pollution from fossil fuels alone is responsible for 10 million premature deaths a year. 10 million, that's double the number of COVID per year. And then climate change is affecting people's health at every level and is estimated to be one of the greatest humanitarian disasters we've ever seen in terms of um, food shortages, water shortages, disaster impacts, and catalyzing even refugee crises. So what I was doing there was appealing to people who already have that value, saying, if you consider yourself to be pro-life, then look at how these issues affect people's lives. But if that's not a core value people have, then let's have a different conversation. Let's figure out what your core values are. And I can tell you 99 times out of 100, we can connect those directly to how climate change is affecting what you care about and how solutions can benefit it. In your descriptions of conversations with fellow evangelicals, um, I am struck that you are addressing it as a faith-based you know, question, some of the things you share in faith. But for many of us, it is appearing more and more at the evangelical movement is really more politics first than anything. They're in lockstep with Donald Trump and his supporters. Um, what he says is what they believe. It doesn't, it seems to have very little to do with faith uh, other than faith in political actors. Well, What's you're exactly your take? right. I, I completely agree with you. And in fact, that's what I was alluding to earlier when many people who claim the label of Christian here in the US don't even go to church. Um, and we don't only see this with Protestants, we see it with Catholics too. So many Catholics, including leaders, and there's been studies showing this, bishops of the, of the Catholic Church in the US, they don't go with the Pope on climate change. I mean, the Pope wrote Laudato Si, which is an encyclical all about climate change, wrote it seven years ago. It's a, it's a really wonderful document, both theologically as well as scientifically. But there are many people in the US who, don't, who call themselves Catholics who wouldn't agree with the Pope on that. <laughs> and so what we're seeing is a phenomena where religious labels have really become, as you just pointed out, 
political labels. And that's why it's so important, again, when we have our conversations with each other, to really take time to get to know each other, what we really care about, what's really motivating our perspectives on things. Because for many people, they might call themselves something, but that isn't what's driving their perspectives. And so if somebody's you know, calling themselves an evangelical Christian, they're saying, that's why I reject climate change. If you dig down, it turns out it has nothing to do with what they might believe theologically. It's all ideological. Well, I'm not going to get into the theology of it that with, with them because that isn't why they care about it. They might care about it because they feel like who they are is being pushed to the back of the line. And they feel like climate solutions are more about pushing them even further to the back of the line. So that's where we have to have a conversation about a just transition, for example, about how we need to imitate um, the example of, of one West Virginia town that I just heard about this week where they're bringing in a battery manufacturing plant because in order to use electricity in many things like our vehicles and things like that, we need really good batteries. They're bringing in a battery manufacturing plant and they have agreement where the people who are losing their jobs in the coal mining industry are getting the first jobs in the battery plant. Those are the types of things we need to talk about if people's real concern is that we're being pushed to the end of the line. We don't have the ability to support our families anymore. We've worked all our lives and now we just feel like um, our opportunities are being taken away from us. We need to bring up what the real concern is in order to have these conversations. And you know, you might think, well, how am I supposed to know that? <laughs> A lot of it is just listening, just really listening and digging in and asking questions. And that gets back to the fact that the best messengers are us, all of us who know other people, who have those relationships, who can spend that time having those conversations. It's tough, but by asking the questions, by listening to the answers, again, not with the seven percenters, you know, not with the climate dismissives or, you know, the QAnon conspiracy theorists who won't listen to anything else other than that, not with that, but with everybody else, it turns out most of us are everybody else. But the conversation these days is dominated by the people at the tails. And it's time to really take those conversations back. Because when it all comes down to it, most of us want a better future. Most of us agree on what a better future looks like. A, you know, clean air to breathe in Vermont, ample and clean water to drink, the recreational opportunities, the forests that we grew up with, the, you know, healthy ecosystems and healthy foodscapes, as we call them with the Nature Conservancy, a safe place to live where you don't have to worry about your home being destroyed good jobs for your kids so that they're going to university or college and they're able to get a job when they graduate. Most people would agree that that's what we want. But here's the thing. If we don't fix climate change, we're not going to have those things in Vermont and we're not going to have those things most of the rest of the places in the world. And so when we start there, then we can start to talk about what do real solutions look like. And that's why I'm so excited to be with the Nature Conservancy, for example, because they're all about real solutions at the local scale, whether it's investing in uh, you know, removing the, the deadbeat dams that prevent the fish from moving up and down the rivers, whether it's, uh, they're do actually doing the largest elm tree restoration in the whole Northeast right there in Vermont, because we know, and we had this in Ontario too, that Dutch elm disease destroyed a lot of our forests. Um, investing in um, cleaning up Lake Champlain, because <laughs> that's an important source, not just of recreation, but it's important habitat, important source of water, all these win-win-win solutions that have benefits for us today, but also help take up carbon from the atmosphere at the same time, all of these solutions can benefit us where we live and they can help with global climate change too. You mentioned that you co-founded a group called Science Moms. What was the inspiration for that? So across the US, 
70% of people are already worried about climate change, but polls show that 83% of mothers are worried about climate change across the political spectrum. Democrat, Republican, rural, suburban, urban, 83% of mothers are worried, but half of us feel hopeless and helpless and don't know what to do. So I'm a mom and I know a bunch of other scientists who are also moms. And part of the reason why we study climate change is because of our kids, because we would do anything for a better future for our kids. And so we, we felt like, well, if we feel like that, there's probably a lot of other moms who also think that way too. So we created Science Moms and you can find us online at sciencemoms.com. We've got a Pinterest page and a Facebook page, and we've got all kinds of resources, little videos, tips, all kinds of things that you can do with your kids and you can share with everybody you know. When you speak with moms, um, is it different? Are the conversations different? Are you able to start in a different place? Well, for sure, because as we've, we've talked about before, the best place to start is with something that you care about. And the more you care about it, the better the conversation is. And what does a mother care about more than the future of their kids? <laughs> so immediately we're starting from that same place. And actually, if you go to sciencemoms.com, there's some little videos where um, a bunch of us have done a little short, like I'm talking one minute videos where we talk about our kids and we, our kids are even in the videos and we talk about why we care about climate change. And, my gosh, I can't even watch some of those videos without a Kleenex because it just hits you right in the heart. And, you know, there's no doubt why this matters. And there's no doubt that we have to fight as hard as we can because we would do anything for our kids. And so I think we do begin in a different place the closer the issue is to our heart. I want to talk about some of the pushback that you've gotten as a climate scientist speaking uh, your truth. Um, you wrote a chapter about climate change for a book that was being, uh, I don't know if it was edited by or authored by Newt Gingrich. Mm -hmm. um, talk about what happened to that chapter that you wrote. Oh dear, so um, I had met um, his co-author um, at a Republicans for Environmental Protection meeting that they had asked me to speak at. And just to be clear, I am not Republican or Democrat, I'm Canadian, but I try to speak to anybody who's interested in hearing about why climate change matters. So if they invite me, I'm there. So I had met his co-author and they asked me to write the first chapter for a book that they were doing on climate solutions, on how um, but we can invest in solutions today with benefits today as well as benefits for tomorrow. And we're seeing that already today in terms of, you know, there's more jobs in the solar energy industry than there's in the coal industry, right? Um, you know, smart agriculture helps make uh, farmers drought resistant, but it also takes up carbon too. We're seeing all kinds of ways that climate solutions help today as well as helping tomorrow. Um, but back then, this was like, you know, I don't know, almost 15 years ago. That was a pretty new idea. So I wrote the first chapter for the book, and then the book just kind of got delayed. It got delayed some more, and it got delayed some more. And then it turned out that he was running in the Republican primaries for president. And so it came out in one of the town halls that he had proposed this book, which was to be published by Johns Hopkins University, which of course is a very well-respected um, university press, and that a climate scientist had written the first chapter. And that was when things hit the fan. So there is just a deluge of hateful messages and attacks and all kinds of things that frankly, I still get today. I still get, you know, between nasty comments on social media, phone calls, actual letters, emails, I get, anywhere from one or two a day to sometimes dozens per week of hate messages 
simply because I'm standing up and saying climate is changing. Humans are responsible. We've checked. The impacts are serious, but solutions matter and can make a difference if we act now. For sharing that simple truth, it's such a threat to so many people that they try their best to silence the messenger. Whereas the reality is, is a hurricane doesn't knock on your door and say, excuse me, who did you vote for in the last election before it destroys your home? And a drought doesn't say, uh, hello, are you a registered voter for which party before it devastates your farm or takes out your water supply? Climate change affects all of us. And whoever we are, it doesn't matter where we fall on the political spectrum, we are all being affected by it. And that's why we need to find solutions that work for all of us. And that is why I work so hard to build that common ground because you know, we don't need everybody. Some of those seven percenters will never come along with us. But you know, if we have 90% of people on board, that's what we need to move forward. And I really, truly think we can do it. I understand that following an appearance that you had on Bill O'Reilly's show on Fox News, you really had a, a spike in threats. I mean, what are these threats consist of? Are they threats to harm you? Are they violent threats? Well, a lot of the threats um, are very gender-based. I get a lot of you know, slurs that you would only direct at a woman. Um, even get people saying things like, you know, get back to the kitchen where you belong, <laughs> or calling me the handmaiden of the Antichrist or the, <laughs> the high priestess of Satan. Um, but there's also ones that are a bit more serious, like how would you feel if somebody started firing at you through your window? or I wish I could see your head rolling off the guillotine. Um, I get some of those as well. And that after that appearance that I, I did set a record, I got about 200 hate mail messages the next morning, um, in part because people took my email address from my academic site and posted online, encouraged people to send those messages. But why are they doing that? Like, they don't know me. Um, you know, they're calling me all these names and they've never met me. They've never spoken to me. They probably ever never even listened to me. Why are they doing that? It's because they see this information as representing a profound threat, not only to their ideology, but to their identity. And that is the biggest problem we have, that people have hung their identity on things that not only are not true, but that affect them. It's like cutting off your nose to spite your face. It's like saying, well, I don't believe gravity is real because all my group says it isn't real. And then you step off the cliff, well, you're still going down. <laughs> it doesn't matter if you said it wasn't real. So that's why, again, these, these courageous conversations, I think, because it does take some courage, are so important, but not with the seven percenters, not with the uncle who's always posting the stuff on Facebook, because he's never going to change his mind. Just with that uncle, the best thing to say is, I love you, but you're wrong. Now let's talk about something else. But with everybody else, two thirds of all the people across the country don't even talk about climate change occasionally. Two thirds. 70% are worried, but only 8% are activated. So what's the biggest thing we can do is have that conversation with anybody we know about why it matters, about what we could do to fix it, to move people from being concerned, cautious, even worried to activate it. What is your take on what was just passed in the Inflation Reduction Act uh, in terms of its climate provisions? Um, the Inflation Reduction Act, first of all, is well-named because who doesn't want to reduce inflation, right? If it was called the Fixing Climate Change Act, there'd be a lot of people who say, well, I don't want to fix climate change. But reducing inflation, most people would agree, I want to reduce inflation. So that, that, first of all, is a good name for it. 
But second of all, it is the most significant piece of climate legislation that's been enacted so far. And there was other investments in FEMA, and then there was the chip spill as well um, that, that helped to make our supply chain more resilient to extreme events. When you put that all together, you get the biggest investment in climate resilience and climate mitigation planning the US has ever done. It's a great step in the right direction, and we need more. What do you think is its most important provision regarding climate change? Well, I think what's most important about the Inflation Reduction Act is that it covers a lot of different bases. So yes, it has the investments in solar energy and wind energy and renewable energy technology that you would expect, but it also has a huge investment in natural climate solutions. Natural climate solutions are ways to work with nature to help nature make us more resilient to climate impacts and to take carbon out of the atmosphere where we have too much and put it back in the ecosystems and the soil and the wetlands where we want it. So investing in nature, the studies that we've done at the Nature Conservancy shows that natural climate solutions could take up a third of our carbon emissions around the world. That's a lot. There's no silver bullet to climate change. There's no one solution that will fix it all, but there's a lot of silver buckshot and that is a big piece of silver buckshot. And then I was also really encouraged by the fact that the bill had some investment in the low income communities that are disproportionately affected by climate impacts. Here in the US, as well as around the world, the people who've done the least to contribute to the problem are the people who are most affected. And that is not fair. And so I was very encouraged to see a beginning at investment in climate justice in that bill. Great. A lot of people put great effort and expense towards personal climate solutions, buying an electric vehicle, um, you know, and other things that are part of our daily routine, recycling, etc. Mm -hmm. How much does that matter when compared against kind of structural change? Well, you just hit the nail on the head there. <laughs> that is probably one of the most frequent questions I'm asked is, do we need individual change or system-wide change? And my answer to that is yes. Because what is a system made up of? It's made up of people. So what is the most important thing an individual can do? In the words of Bill McKibben, somebody who is familiar to many people in Vermont, I would hope, the best thing an individual can do right now, says Bill, is not be such an individual. What does that mean? It means that when we use our voices to engage with whatever parts of the system we're part of, we all live somewhere. We all might work somewhere, we study somewhere, we might be part of a group or an organization, a club, a church. We are all part of circles that are greater than ourselves. And how does any of those begin to change? It's when somebody opens their mouth and catalyzes that change. That's how change begins. And so sometimes we might be talking about what we do ourselves. We might be saying, hey, you know, so I've been recycling this and I've been wondering about where to do this, but I found this great thing where you can recycle this too. Oh yeah, I could try that too. Or I've been trying these plant-based meals or I've been going to the local farmer's market or I've been doing this in my yard and I haven't been using peat anymore because destruction of peatlands is really bad for climate. Did you know that? And they're like, oh, well, maybe I should do that too in my yard. So some of that is individual actions, not just what we do ourselves, but sharing that with others. But some of it is, hey, our cafeteria has a lot of food waste. What are we doing with that? Or where do we get our energy from? Is it coming from clean sources? Or have we done an energy audit in our building to reduce our costs as well as increase our efficiency? Or where are our pension funds invested? Or what is our bank doing? 
about investing in fossil fuels or divesting from it? Or what is our church doing? Or what is our Rotary Club doing? Or what is our school doing? And so if we as individuals use our voices to catalyze change, that is the most effective way that we as individuals can change the system. And here's the thing, when you look back in history, it isn't the presidents, the prime ministers, the CEOs, the you know, rulers of the world who typically began the big societal changes that we've seen. And we've seen some really big societal changes. The abolition of slavery, women getting the vote, civil rights, gay marriage. It wasn't because, you know, a president woke up one morning and said, hey, you know, really should be giving women the vote. <laughs> or, you know, hey, really should be enacting civil rights. It was because people who at that time were not well known. They were not famous, they were not rich, they were not influential but they had something, a voice, and they used it. And now we know some of their names, but there's a lot more names that we don't know, but they use their voices too, and together they change the world. And so if they did it then, we can do it now. Well, Professor Catherine Hayhoe, I wanna thank you for joining us on the Vermont Conversation. Thank you for having me.